Hi, it's Katie, the executive producer of Darkness. What you're about to hear is season one of Devilish Deeds, a historical true crime podcast we originally released in May of 2022. Over the next four episodes, you'll hear the story of one of the first ever serial killers who attacked mostly black women working as servants in Austin, Texas in the 1880s. If you enjoyed this podcast, look for Devilish Deeds in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app because season two is coming later this year. That season will cover another historical true crime case, the phantom killer who terrorized Texarkana, Texas in 1946. You're listening to The Drag. The story you're about to hear contains mentions of physical and sexual violence. Please keep this in mind as you continue to listen to this podcast. It's a Friday night in Austin, Texas. I'm meeting my coworker and my professor at the flagship Whole Foods at the edge of Austin's crowded 6th Street for a tour about murder. The air is still, but 6th Street isn't. Cars fly by and music pours out of the bars and restaurants in Austin's busiest entertainment district. Around a dozen people wait on the street corner, gathered in a semicircle around a tour guide. We're about to travel back in time to when America's first known serial killer targeted African-American women. And it all started where I'm standing right now. As a black woman myself, it feels inconceivable to be standing in the same spot where Molly Smith, a black servant for a white family, was viciously murdered more than a century ago. Her servant's quarters were a few feet from where our guide, Jim Miles, starts his tour. What we're going to do tonight literally is trace the steps of a serial killer. Jim's been giving this tour for about two and a half years. Um, I'm the CEO and janitor of Walking Tours of Austin. This is what I do. As I stand on the street corner, I listen to Jim paint a picture of Molly Smith's servants' quarters. So it all started here on a freezing cold night on December the 30th, 1884. I'm going to show a few of these as we move along, but what you'll see here is a red box, and you see it's an... He holds up a tablet with the map of Austin in 1885. There's a small red box drawn on the map around the property where Molly Smith lived. Jim tells us it couldn't have been bigger than about 100 square feet. It's strange to imagine her small shack here where the massive Whole Foods stands. I think about how impossible it would be for all of us on the tour to squeeze into the tiny building where Molly lived. I read a book about these murders when I first started working on this podcast. It's called The Midnight Assassin, and it was written by legendary Texas Monthly reporter Skip Hollinsworth. But reading a book about these murders felt so different than standing here. Unseasonably cool night. For nearly uh, cool two hours, our tour continues cold. up and down the streets of Austin. Jim continues to describe just how vicious these killings were. We walk up a hill through Austin's historic district, and he leads us into a parking garage of all places. After the noise and music along 6th Street, the silence in the garage feels loud, just like I'm sure it did in the 1880s. But in Austin, Texas in 1885, you could have heard a pin drop. As we're all standing in the parking garage, Jim starts to demonstrate the killer's methods. He lobotomized her right there, dragged her out, and then posed her he body. He swings his arm raped. and mimics the sound of an fence, axe, cutting the through the air and splitting the victim's skull. Standing there, watching Jim tell the story, I'm afraid to imagine the scenario he's acting out, almost as if doing that would manifest another cold-blooded murderer. Imagine a Ted Bundy loose on the streets of Austin in 1885, a city that doesn't even have streetlights. The tour that night was intense. That's why it's important for us to tell this story. There isn't a lot of information on the victims. Most of what has been written about the murders focuses on the killer, not the lives he took. 
That's a problem. We need to be a voice for these women to make their stories known, to portray historically accurate information on what life was actually like during these events, only 20 years after slavery ended. I'm Megan Parker, and you're listening to Episode 1 of Devilish Deeds. It's a new podcast from The Drag, an audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin. Over the next four episodes, we'll travel way back in time, before Jack the Ripper, even before H.H. Holmes, to one of America's first serial killers who targeted primarily black women working as domestic servants in the homes of rich white Austinites. The killer, known as the Servant Girl Annihilator, or the Midnight Assassin, terrorized the frontier town of Austin in the 1880s. This is a story about a series of unsolved, brutal murders, a story that's been told on ghost tours and documentaries and in countless news stories. It's even been fictionalized in novels. But this is also the story of the lives and deaths of black women in a relatively progressive city and a not-so-progressive state in the aftermath of the Civil War. In this podcast, you'll hear from some of the experts on this case. How do we tell the story of a serial murderer without talking about the murderer themselves? Let's just try it as an experiment. Let's only talk about the victims. And let's not give any airtime to the person who did this. That changes the narrative. Each time something like this happens, the city sees itself in a different way. And the city changes its self-image in a way that that is unexpected. It is a sort of illuminating part of um, Austin's racist past that needs to be considered and remembered. And you'll hear about why these murders are still relevant today in a city that can still be categorized as relatively progressive in a not-so-progressive state. It's New Year's Eve in Austin, Texas. Men and women clink champagne glasses, dance the night away, and huddle together as a northern storm tears through the city. According to Skip Hollinsworth's book, The Midnight Assassin, it's the biggest party in town, the New Year's Eve Phantom Masquerade. The dancers swirl across the floor in black silk, faces cloaked in masks. The women wear elaborate dresses with ribbons and ruffles and lace. The men wear fitted coats paired with striped trousers and bow ties. As they count down to midnight, they shoot Roman candles into the sky. Austinites have much to celebrate. The Texas capital city is rapidly growing in population. There's a new gleaming pink granite capital building under construction on a sweeping hill that overlooks the city, and the town is bustling. Politicians, leaders, and citizens think Austin is in its golden era, and the celebration at the massive New Year's Eve ball is proof. 1884 ends with a bang, and the new year brings with it a sense of hope. But a cold darkness has swept over Austin and enveloped the city and it has nothing to do with the cold front that crept in a couple of days prior. Just the day before the New Year's Eve festivities, the body of 25-year-old Molly Smith had been found hacked to pieces in an Austin backyard. Nobody knew it yet, but one of America's first serial killers had begun his work. More than 137 years after the death of Molly Smith, the first victim of this unknown murderer, Austin is a bustling city with nearly one million residents, more than two million when you count the suburbs. 
Downtown, you can spot just as many cranes as you can skyscrapers, constantly adding more towering buildings to Austin's skyline. The city is a hub for the technology and entertainment industries, and it's become a major tourist destination. Bachelor and bachelorette parties flock to 6th Street from all over the country, looking to have a good time in Austin's busy entertainment district. But in 1884, 6th Street wasn't called 6th Street. It was named Pecan Street, and even then it was the heart of Austin. So, you know, Texas becomes a state in 1845, so we've, we are firmly established as a state capital. Um, there's no question about that. We have um, a couple of major rail lines in the city. Uh, we are a city that has, you know, all the normal functioning uh, apparatus of a successful, like I said, an emerging city. Uh, very much dominated by the railroad, I would say. And in that, uh, and also being the state capital, politics means there's great um, hope in Austin that maybe we could be the next St. Louis, Missouri or San Francisco, you know, something on this nature. And as America continues to expand and go west, there's this kind of this dream uh, of Austin by certain men of becoming a city of epic proportions. Well, I don't think that's overstated. Men like Driscoll and Mayor Robertson and certainly governor, the governor at the time, uh, Ireland, loved to speak of Austin, not in normal terms, but there was something almost divine about the city. That's Jim Miles, our tour guide again. He's the owner of Walking Tours of Austin and the host of the Murder Walk Austin Tour. But he also has a master's degree in Southern history. He has studied this time period in the United States extensively, and he even wrote his master's thesis about true crime. I spent more time chasing rabbit trails of true crime. I know what it is now. They didn't have a label for it back then. We were just weird back then. Jim told us that Austin is pretty progressive for a major city in the South during Reconstruction, the period of time after the Civil War. But it's still pretty segregated. There are designated areas for communities of color, for Austin's large populations of German and Mexican immigrants, and of course, the black community. There was a thriving African-American population. And again, I want to be guarded with my words because it would be unfair to say there was equality in thriving. Like, so there's different bars and taverns and saloons, you know, uh, black and white. But in and around Shoal Creek, there were newspapers and uh, hospitals and uh, or doctor's offices would be better to put and uh, dry goods stores and other things that catered largely to the uh, to the black population in Austin. All of Austin was thriving during this time. It was a city on the upswing. It was very small, um, but growing quickly. Uh, imagine there's no streets paved. Um, the one square mile uh, uh, outline of, of Austin had, be- had begun to spill out into to the farmlands to the, the east and the west and the north. That's Michael Barnes, a columnist at the Austin American Statesman. He writes about Austin's culture and history for the newspaper, and he's written several books about Austin history. It was a still very much a a town of crime and and outlaw behavior. People were shot or stabbed in the middle of the street, and they didn't think that that was unusual. (laughs) In fact, oftentimes they got away with it. To understand what happened in the 1800s in Austin, We've pieced together the story primarily from newspaper reports from what was then called the Austin Daily Statesman. But these aren't the newspaper articles you're used to reading. The reporters back then were okay with the facts being misconstrued. 
it's hard to distinguish fact from opinion in many of these articles. The Statesman was born in 1871, and it was the dominant newspaper and has remained so for 150 years. The major papers in the other cities, Galveston, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, would have sent reporters on this sensational story. And also, the the big um, newspapers in New York and Chicago and San Francisco would have sent uh, uh, reporters. And um, it was a story. It was a story that sold newspapers. And uh, a lot of our memories of it have to do with the way that it was framed by those uh, sensationalistic newspaper reports, as I'm sure you already know from your research. And the headlines they wrote were really something. A fearful midnight murder on West Pecan. Mystery and crime. Devilish deeds. More mischief by the night prowlers. The foul fiends keep up their bloody work. It wasn't just the criminals they wrote about this way. They had no care or respect in the way they described black men and women, both as victims and suspects. Some headlines read, quote, domestic help, the question of white versus colored female help, or, quote, bad blacks, a lot of ruffians on the rampage in the capital city. And this wasn't an accident. What we now know as the Austin American Statesman had been founded 14 years prior as the Democratic Statesman. The Statesman was closely allied with the uh, conservative wing of the Texas Democratic Party. In fact, it was created by that wing and which was um, un, was without concealing it, uh, a white supremacist. So when in the murders, when they were discovered, um, oftentimes uh, African-Americans uh, were the chief suspects. Of course, they were the chief victims too, but um, they were often, fingers were pointed right away at, um, African-Americans who, who seemed to be a potential suspect. We can't talk about this case without discussing the racism, the way the victims, who were mostly black servant women, were dehumanized, the way investigators and the media were certain that black men had to be behind the crimes, and the way this story is still relevant today in a culture that continues to marginalize, disenfranchise, discredit, and wrongfully accuse black people. The paper has changed over the last century, but the way journalists covered minority communities through much of that time remains a sore spot. In 2020, during the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd, the Austin American Statesman ran an opinion piece written by the editor, John Bridges, denouncing the views of the newspaper's founders. Here's John, who retired in 2021 and now teaches at my journalism school, and, appropriately, he's the voice actor who reads the newspaper headlines in this podcast. I was editor of the Statesman when we prepared to celebrate its 150th anniversary. We wanted to look back at the paper's history, sort of the, the warts and all, and I wanted to write a column addressing some of that history. Um, the paper was founded to promote an agenda um, that really was clinging to the mythology of the Confederacy and opposing the kinds of changes that we might now think of as civil rights. Um, over time, as politics and journalism changed, the paper changed as well. But looking back through those first several decades of newspapers, you see racial attitudes that frankly are appalling. 
quite often the newspaper didn't even bother to include a name when a black person was killed. It might just say Negro, a Negro died or was killed or was found, anonymous to history. Unfortunately, we'll see attitudes such as that throughout this podcast. I'm proud of the work the newspaper has done in the many decades since then, but still must denounce the attitudes of that early history. Bloody Work, a fearful midnight murder on West Pecan, mystery and crime, a colored woman killed outright and her lover almost done for. It's December 30th, 1884, the day before that memorable New Year's Eve party in Austin. Sometime between 9 and 10 p.m., Walter Spencer, a 29-year-old black man, arrives at the home of an insurance salesman. It's where his girlfriend, Molly Smith, works as a cook. Walter frequently spends the night with Molly in her servant quarters. She's relatively new in town. She's only been here for about a month since she moved from Waco, Texas, a town about 100 miles northeast of Austin. Molly met Walter shortly after moving, even though a former boyfriend of hers had followed her from Waco to Austin. Molly is a domestic servant. In the post-Reconstruction South, it's a common way of life for black women. It means she likely works from sunup to sundown every day, making as little as 4 to $8 a month. It's grueling, thankless work, but it's paying work, and she has a roof over her head. When Walter arrives at Molly's quarters, he feels bad for her. She tells him she hasn't been feeling well, but she asks him to wake her up early the next morning. They go to bed. All is quiet in the home. The insurance salesman who Molly works for isn't home, but his brother-in-law is staying at the house while he's away. Everyone's fast asleep until sometime between 3 and 4 a.m. Mr. Tom, for God's sakes, do something to help me. Somebody has nearly killed me. Walter wakes up the brother-in-law to tell him he's been hit in the head with an axe. He's badly injured and he's bleeding from at least five wounds on his face. Walter has no idea what happened. He doesn't know who broke into the servant quarters. He doesn't know who hit him with the axe. But he has a strong feeling that his girlfriend, Molly, is dead. We're not sure if Walter told the brother-in-law that Molly had been attacked, or if he even knew, because it doesn't seem like anyone besides Walter realizes or cares what happened. Nobody goes to check on Molly. The brother-in-law simply points Walter in the direction of the doctor's house nearby. Then apparently, he just goes back to sleep. Everyone notices Molly's missing at breakfast, but it's not until 9 a.m. when a neighbor sees something strange in the backyard that they realize the horror of what happened in the early hours of that morning. Molly's body lies in the backyard. There's a hole in the side of her head. Her attacker had dragged her out of the servants' quarters about 50 steps and hidden her behind an outhouse. That's why nobody in the house had noticed her body. She was a cook. Um, and she had been struck in the head with an axe as she slept. Um, and this is, I mean, you might want to start this with a trigger warning. Maybe you already are. This is very dark, very traumatizing. Uh, she was raped uh, in the backyard and her body was hacked to pieces. That's Jenna Cooper. She works at the Austin History Center as a records analyst for the public library. She knows a lot about what Austin was like in the 1880s and consequently about the murders. Jenna says the attacks on black servant women actually started months before Molly's death, and they were just as brutal. 
in July 1884, there were two instances of black women being stabbed in the face as they slept. And these women both survived, but authorities investigated them as separate incidents. And then in August 1884, a black woman was struck in the head with a smoothing iron as she slept. So these were nocturnal attacks, very much uh, in the line of what the servant girl Annihilator did. He only attacked by night. And then in November 1884, there was another non-fatal nocturnal assault on a black servant woman. And so this incident actually never appeared in the newspaper. And then you find a little over a month later, Molly Smith was the first victim who was killed. And Molly's death is gruesome. When the police arrive at the home on the morning of December 31st, 1884, Molly's servant quarters are covered in blood. The furniture is in disarray. The bed is soaked in blood, and there are bloody fingerprints on the door. Perhaps the most horrific of all is the bloody axe that sits at the foot of the bed, and a trail of blood leads from the servant quarters to the outhouse in the yard. Outside, Molly lies on her back. She's nearly nude. She's been stabbed in the chest and abdomen, and cuts run up and down her arms and legs. Her head is split open, According to Skip Hollingsworth's book, The Midnight Assassin, when an undertaker tries to lift Molly's body to take her to the morgue, her body did not, quote, hold together. Molly Smith is the first victim of what will soon be known as the Servant Girl Annihilator, a name that doesn't even begin to describe the brutality of the murders. Police point their investigation into Molly's death towards the first obvious suspect, her boyfriend, Walter Spencer. They think this could have been a lover's bat turned deadly, but they quickly find out that's unlikely. Everyone says Walter and Molly loved each other, and the months they'd been together, they seemed happy. By the afternoon of New Year's Day, a more likely suspect appears, William Brooks, Molly's ex-boyfriend, the one who followed her to Austin from Waco. Brooks is a bartender at a saloon not far from where Molly lived. He claims he stayed out late until 4 a.m. the night before, working at a dance, he swears he couldn't have murdered Molly. But Walter Spencer tells police that three months before the attacks, Brooks claimed he wanted to fight him. These are about the facts, and the reader is left to draw his own conclusions. Whether slain by her lover or some party from the outside is as yet a mystery that envelops as foul a deed as was ever done in Austin. Investigators spend the days after the murder trying to figure out what exactly happened here. The family member that Walter Spencer woke up, the one he told about the attack, swears to police that the family didn't even own an axe. Nobody knows where the murder weapon came from. If this murder occurred today, police would track down where the murderer bought the weapon, or they tested for DNA. But there are no modern-day forensics in 1884. And as you can imagine, in a small city like Austin, the rumors start flying. Another domestic servant living in the home says Molly had a temper. Witnesses share conflicting stories about when they had seen Brooks, Molly's ex-boyfriend, the night she was murdered. And they speculate on whether he's the murderer. Multiple people claim Brooks stayed at the dance until 4 a.m., but one woman says she saw him around 2 a.m., which could have given him the time to walk the two miles to murder Molly. It also would have given him plenty of time to clean up and change out of his bloody clothes by the time police arrested him on New Year's Day. The evidence against Brooks is circumstantial at best, but still, 
after a four-day jury inquiry. A jury decides Brooks is responsible for the murder anyway. Even the newspaper article from the Statesman that day seems unsure. It is needless to repeat the details of this bloody business, but those readers who have kept track of it will be very slow to accept the verdict as conclusive against Brooks. The newspaper quoted Brooks saying, I know both the woman Molly Smith and Walter Spencer. I like them both. I never had any falling out with either. I knew her in Waco, and I have had nothing to do with her here. In the months following Molly's murder, Austin experiences a bit of a crime spree. But, like I said, Austin was a rough town in those days. A series of robberies and attacks keep the town on edge. On March 10th, a young German girl working as a domestic servant awakes in the middle of the night to a white man demanding, quote, her money or her life. Then he hits her over the head with a stone. On March 14th, a black servant woman hears noises at her door in the middle of the night, and her husband runs outside with a pistol, firing at the people who had been shaking the door. The vandals start throwing rocks at the building, waking up other people living there, until they finally run off. There are three more incidents that same night. An hour after the first event, two black domestic servants awake to knocks on their door. They've been sleeping, so no lamps are burning in their quarters. They hear someone demanding to get in, but they refuse to open the door. So, the intruder tries to get in through a window. The terrified women run away, but their intruder chases them, catching one of the women and throwing her to the ground. She screams, and thankfully someone hears her, rescuing her as the attacker runs away. The women are so scared they refuse to go back to their room, but when they eventually return, they discover their lamp has been lit. Later, that same night, two men break into the living quarters of yet another black domestic servant. The newspapers say she was, quote, subjected to the most brutal treatment. The woman recognizes one of the men who attacked her. He's a local barber, and he's then arrested for the crime. The servant girl describes both of her attackers as being black. The last attack that night happened at a home near City Hall. The attacker breaks in and attempts to assault the woman inside but he's scared off by the frightened woman's scream. Just a few nights later, around 1 a.m. on March 19th, robbers break into the servants' quarters at the home of a local colonel, attacking the two women living there. The newspaper describes them as, quote, two pretty sweet girls named Christine and Clara. It's important to note that these attacks are all targeted toward black or immigrant women working as domestic servants. There's a clear disparity in the way the press addresses Molly's murder as opposed to the quote, pretty sweet girls. They pity the servants, calling them tidy and industrious and referring to them as poor girls twice. Clara and Christine awake to the sound of knocking on their door and Clara gets up to light the lamp. As she stands in her room, a bullet flies through the window, grazing her neck. She screams, running out of her quarters towards the Colonel's home. She runs up the stairs and grabs the doorknob, when one of her attackers grabs her and drags her down the stairs, tucking her hand out of its grip on the doorknob. Clara resists her attacker and screams loudly. Her screams wake up the colonel's family. By the time they run to her aid, her attacker is gone. They think the danger is over. The family is trying to figure out what happened, and according to journalist Skip Hollingsworth's book about the murders, Christine had been in the kitchen talking to the colonel's wife about sleeping somewhere else that night. They were scared to sleep in their bedroom. 
that's when another bullet flies through the window of the home, hitting Christine between her shoulder and spinal column. She somehow survives, despite the poor quality of 19th century medicine. That same night, there are three more attempted attacks in the quarters of domestic servants across town. The next day, the statesman writes, Where are the police? Let the citizens now protect themselves and their families, for none can tell the drift of this dangerous epidemic of crime. According to newspaper reports, it's the attack on Christine and Clara that really seems to put the city on edge. This makes five attacks in a nine-day period. Two days later, the statesman dedicates an article to, quote, wicked work. Christine is recovering from her gunshot wound, but still, the paper calls for mob law. The author of the article wants whoever attacked Clara and Christine to be lynched. The newspapers speculate that a, quote, gang of ruffians is responsible for the attacks. They criticize the police, writing that the lack of protection by law enforcement means that the citizens themselves should band together and patrol the streets. Every time, Austin residents begin to think that maybe, maybe the reign of attacks is over, another occurs. Nearly six weeks pass without an attack, but then there are two more on April 30th. First, a man breaks into the home of a tailor, throwing the tailor's wife to the floor, but the tailor himself never wakes up. Later that night, a black woman working as a domestic cook is attacked by a man wearing one of the dresses that she had hung on the line in the yard. He grabs her by the throat and threatens her with a razor, saying he'll kill her if she screams. But two other women appear in the yard and notice the cook's door is open. So they call to her, which startles the attacker. He runs away, slashing at them with a razor, but never hitting any of them. The neighbor hears the commotion and grabs his pistol, watching as the attacker attempts to cut the dress off himself with the razor. But the neighbor's gun misfires, so the man gets away. He leaps over the fence into an alley. Neighbors find the dress in an alley the next day, covered in the man's blood. It seemed he had to cut himself trying to cut the dress off. The next day, May 1st, 1885, the statesman publishes a poem. Get thee a gun serving girl, and keep it by thy bed. Take aim upon the ruffian and fill him full of lead. Four months after his arrest, William Brooks is released from jail. There's not enough evidence to convict him of the murder of Molly Smith. The police are back at square one. And as Austin lives in fear, the city's very small police force is busy. There are only 12 men on the force. That means each of them serve 500 residents. They're short-staffed and unorganized. Two of these men are black police officers assigned to patrol the black neighborhoods. They're not allowed to carry weapons, and they're definitely not allowed to arrest white Austinites. And remember, the murder of Molly Smith occurred in a mostly white neighborhood. Even more attacks follow on May 1st and 2nd. People throw stones through the windows of homes and servants' quarters. Someone sees a black cook struggling with a man in a yard. Multiple servants' quarters are broken into, and the burglars are chased away by homeowners wielding guns. Two more men are arrested the following day. On May 7, 1885, after months of late-night attacks on servant women and other Austin residents, the killer strikes again, but this time in an even more brutal manner. 30-year-old Eliza Shelley works as a cook for Dr. Lucien B. Johnson. 
Eliza lives with her three children in a one-room cabin in the Johnsons family's backyard on the south side of the city. It's around six o'clock in the morning and Dr. Johnson isn't home. He's gone to the market. His wife hears screams coming from the backyard and sends her niece to see what's going on. The niece peeks into the one-room cabin and goes pale. She sees Eliza Shelley's body on the floor. There's a gaping wound above her right eye, another between her eyes, and one over her ear. The young girl runs back into the house to tell her aunt what she saw. Miss Johnson runs outside to see for herself, and she finds the small cabin in disarray. Blood saturates the bedding and two trunks have been broken into. Eliza's body is wrapped in the bedspread in a patchwork quilt that's been taken out of one of the trunks. There's no murder weapon in sight. But there is one piece of evidence. Upon returning home from the market and discovering what happened in his backyard, Dr. Johnson spots something. Footprints in the sandy backyard, leading from Eliza's cabin to the alleyway. Eliza's three young children had been in the cabin with her when she was attacked. They're dazed, overwhelmed by the sight of their dead mother and the amount of people swarming around their small home. The oldest child is only eight years old. The statesman talks to Eliza's eight-year-old son that day, and his story is a little unclear. He is eight years old, after all. He says a man came into the room and demanded money from his mother. He says the man told him to cover up his head, and if he didn't, he'd kill him. The attacker told the boy that he was a white man. But when talking to Miss Johnson, the boy said the man's face was covered in a white rag, so he couldn't really tell if he was white or black. The man told the boy he planned to go to St. Louis the next day. In the span of a week, police arrest two black men they think could be responsible for Eliza's murder. The first is a 19-year-old. Newspaper reports don't mention why he's been arrested, just that he's barefoot when they find him. So police probably made that arrest based on the footprints they found. The second is a 30-year-old who lived with Eliza before she became a cook for the Johnsons. Witnesses claim he and Eliza got into an argument six weeks before her murder. According to Skip Hollingsworth's book, both men are eventually let go due to a lack of evidence. Remember, it's the 1880s. Forensics aren't a thing yet. Police can't send DNA to labs for testing, and they usually aren't thinking about meticulously gathering evidence from a crime scene. There are really only two main investigative techniques police use in these murders. One is examining footprints, like I mentioned with Eliza's murder. But they're also using the city marshal's bloodhounds to track down the trail of potential suspects. Here's Jenna Cooper with the Austin History Center again. They don't have forensic uh, investigation uh, tactics at this point. You know, essentially what they're using are bloodhounds. And um, around this time, um, they, the authorities believe that it is probably a black man a bunch of black men are getting interrogated. They're getting arrested. Um, it's it's mayhem. It's not being handled well. Um, and I think that goes with, with the times, um, which are A, racist, and B, um, very unsophisticated when it comes to investigation. It's important to note that bloodhounds were often used to track down and recapture slaves. It was thought that black people had a different smell than white people making it easier for bloodhounds to track them. The dogs were trained to tear the flesh off the slaves they captured. 
While Austin's police force did not exclusively use bloodhounds to track down black criminals, it's impossible not to notice the cultural connection between the use of these dogs and the, quote, bad blacks written about in the newspapers. By now, everyone in the small city of Austin is talking about these murders. Some citizens are even raising money to pay for night watchmen to patrol the streets to strengthen the small Austin police force. The statesman even calls for Governor John Ireland to offer a reward in the murders, writing, It does not matter the victim is an obscure colored woman. Her life was as dear to her and should have been held as sacred as that of the proudest lady in the land. Here's Jenna Cooper again. One of the things that I find in researching these victims' lives is that these women were, all of them were very connected in their communities. They had extended family who were very traumatized by this for the rest of their lives. And so you find not just the women who were murdered, but um, the people around them, they were all some victims. The statesman begins to criticize the city's small police force. Remember, there are only 12 men, and only four officers are ever on duty at any one time. So they can't possibly be everywhere at once. Austinites begin to place blame on the city council, who haven't appointed any more officers since the attack started. And while a few immigrant women have been attacked, the two women who have been killed are both black. It's not clear whether these murders are connected to all those attacks I mentioned earlier. But... The victims of those attacks were mostly black women who worked as domestic servants in the homes of white families. So there's an obvious pattern here. Black women at this point are by and large relegated to working in domestic service. This is following the Civil War and for various reasons, but not limited to things like black codes and the emergence of Jim Crow laws and ideologies. Black women literally cannot get employment doing anything else. There are laws barring them from doing so. So they are forced to take on domestic servant jobs. These jobs are split into two camps in which women are either working inside of the house of their white employer or they're working outside of the house of their white employer. That's Dr. Lauren Henley, a professor at the University of Richmond. You heard from her briefly at the beginning of this episode, discussing why we should talk about the victims rather than the perpetrator of these crimes. She researched these murders for her work as a master's student. I am a historian by training, and I have always written about, as I say, Black women who are the victims of or perpetrators of violent crime, where that crime is usually, but not always, serial murder. I was a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin, and at that point knew nothing about a series of murders that happened literally steps from campus, if not a couple of them actually on what is today UT's main campus. Dr. Henley told us that these Black women were even more vulnerable because they often didn't live in the same house as their white employers. They stayed in small outbuildings on the same property as their employers, but separate from the main house. So they are vulnerable because even though they physically reside on the same piece of property as their white employer, they are also limited in these sort of spaces, these shanty houses, these outbuildings um, that do not have any form of security, really. That's not the point of engaging in domestic labor. It's to provide labor for this white household. They don't really care if their domestic servants are particularly comfortable. And it's not as if Black folks have very many other options, right? This is legal segregation. It's not like they could buy the house adjacent to their white employer, even if they could 
literally afford to do so. The laws prohibit them from occupying those same spaces. So they are vulnerable um, in a lot of ways. Just a few decades ago, 35% of Austin families owned slaves. Slavery had only been abolished for 20 years at the time of these murders. In those two decades, Austin became a better city for black people than many other places in the South. But it's by no means safe. Even though the unknown murderer, or murderers, have mostly been terrorizing young, black servant women living in the homes of wealthy white businessmen, everyone is feeling the undercurrent of fear running throughout the city. Austinites feel as if they're under attack. The writer William Sidney Porter, you might know him better as O'Henry, is living in Austin at the time, just three days after Eliza Shelley's murder. He writes a letter to a friend discussing the incident. Town is fearfully dull, except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators who make things lively during the dead hours of the night. If it were not for them, items of interest would be very scarce, as you may see by the statesman. I'm sure O'Henry didn't realize that a casual letter he wrote to a friend contained a phrase that we still use more than a century later, that he'd officially named America's first serial killer, the servant girl annihilator. next on Devilish Deeds. There's something else going on here. Simply because of temporal proximity. You kill one Black woman one week and then kill another Black woman less than three weeks later in the same city under similar circumstances. People are going to start to get worried. This podcast is hosted, reported, and produced by me, Megan Parker. It's also reported, written, and produced by Mina Anderson and edited by Katie Pinchik-Outka. Sound design by Matt Bolin. Robert Quigley and Katie Pinchik-Outka are the executive producers. This podcast is presented by The Drag, a student-run audio production house at the University of Texas at Austin's Mooney College of Communication. The associate producers are Cameron Greiser, Sewa Oliveres, Bethany Stork, Miranda Vilches, Kadeja Balde, Ashley Misnazi, Lori Groby, Lakin Nauman, and Sumaya Malik. Thank you to our voice actors, John Bridges, Christian McDonald, Emmanuel Ogu, Kosi Maloku, Gerald Johnson, Kevin Robbins, Raul Hernandez, Emily Quigley, and Robert Quigley. A huge thank you to Leslie Schrock for all of her support and guidance. We also want to thank Dean J. Bernhardt, Kathleen McElroy, Rachel Davis-Mercy, Allison Dawson, Kathleen Mabley, Anne Jorgensen, Emily Quigley, and Jay Whitman of the Moody College of Communication. And special thanks to Robert Vilwalk and Ann Sellers. Additional sound effects are from zapsplat.com. The Drag is a nonprofit educational organization that is made possible by donors like you. Please support our work by going to thedragaudio.com donate. Every dollar goes directly to producing more content like this while giving students an amazing educational experience. Thank you.